Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Boom, we're live. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This is it, guys. This is it. Okay, this is going to be a good one. It's going to be a fun show today. I'm stoked to talk to this guest because I've known him for quite a while. How long would you say I've known you for? Oh, ages. For 10 years? 10 years? More? More? I I don't even know. Um, Back when I had hair and you looked exactly the way you look, which is odd. I wonder why that's the case. No, I... I don't look the same. There's definitely some. <laughs> no, there. got more of that salty seasoned look now. Um, yeah. well, who is this person I'm talking to? Everyone's wondering a marketing leader, strategist, artist, writer, speaker, and a tie designer, fractional CMO to the stars, founder of the ABM journal, which we will talk about founder of mesh interactive bill Schick. Welcome to the show. Hey Casey. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to get you on here. I mean, we've known each other for a long time and we've, I see each other at events, the Drift Expo, and all sorts of places. It's good to finally get here in person. Yeah, good stuff. I uh, I love what you're doing here, and uh, listen to quite a few of your podcasts, and these are great. This is uh, super exciting. Well, with that answer, we can continue. We can we can actually do the show here. And if you'd said anything otherwise, I'd be like that's the show, everyone. Um, but hey, <laughs> the let, me, end. let me pass you this. It's heavy, but I know you work out, so this will be good. Ugh. Okay, here you go. You got it, Thor's hammer. Oh, all right. There yeah, go. I got it. Yeah, that was a one-handed right. grab there. That was impressive, sir. Um, I'm so worthy. You are worthy. <laughs> you are worthy of the hammer. Take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Just set the record straight once and for all. Yeah, I, this this is, uh, wow, I have a lot to pull from, a lot of uh, misconceptions out there. I think um, I, you know, I think if I had to, to pick one, it's it's something that I think all of us as uh, performing some function somewhere in marketing have experienced, and that is that that a lot of people um, really believe that anybody can do marketing, and that you know they just um, actually I had somebody a CEO tell me that one time. He's like, anybody could do what you guys do. We just don't have the time. We're doing other things, and that actually. Um, got me starting the agency, but that, that is one. I, I really don't, I think it takes a special kind of person to um, do the digging, be creative and put up with the punishment that, that marketers deal with uh, pretty much every day. Wow. So this, the CEO was actually saying that anyone could do this and you were just basically a body filling a seat and they didn't have time to do it. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was funny because it was on the heels of one of the most successful campaigns that, that, that company had ever done. And, uh, I, you know, I was just floored because I hadn't, I had always, I had always seen, uh, whether it was on the creative side, whether it was, you know, looking at writing uh, strategy, even some of the tech stuff, you know, I always, you know, looked at what we did there is, you know, pretty, pretty specialized, needing to pull a lot of different things together and create something that uh, got people excited and passionate and, and drove them to take an action that they may not take, you know, otherwise. And uh, I was just really, really floored. And um, at the time, this was a long, long time ago, but at the time, you know, I was still young, I was still kind of green um, and it hit like it, hit, like it made an impact. And, uh, you know, it, it made me question things, but, you know, 
20 something years later, I realized that there are a lot of people out there who just feel that um, really, you know, anyone could do this job. It's pretty easy. And, uh, you know, I just don't see that as the truth. Yeah. Um, by the way, how's that company doing? <laughs> are they still in business? <laughs> Round. They're around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are. Why do all, a lot of people think that marketing is just like filling a role? I think it depends on who the person is who's having that, that perception. I think, I think there are a couple, I think there are a couple, if I can, if I can talk to two, um, I think one, there's the person who doesn't really understand it. They don't really get what marketing is. They just see whatever shows up in Facebook and they think, oh, well, you know, that, that looks really cool and, e you know, that's probably really easy to do. Um, the other side of that would be uh, more technically minded people. You know, I would, I would say people who are in um, engineering industries and development industries. And, and for them, there's a little bit more of a formulaic view of the world. And so you, you know, if I do this, then I can expect that this is going to come out of that. And it's, it's very um, like if then statements, if this happens, yeah. then this happens. And that's, I mean, that's not ex exactly not how marketing works. And we have this insane variable in marketing, which would be the human element and the human element on the, the input side and the human element on the, the experience side there. So there are a lot of variables there and it's really tough to, you know, with somebody who's got more of an engineering or more of a, like a computer programming background who are so they're just amazingly brilliant in their domain to get them to think a little bit differently about the way that that people act and the decisions we don't we don't always make the most rational decisions and when you put together a campaign based on you know rational thinking and the data and the facts and then it doesn't it doesn't perform like you know maybe it was expected then they look at you like you messed up the formula somewhere and that's not really the entire picture um, so they really have this sense that it should be, you know, input here, output there, and then we should have all the leads, uh, you know, that we would need or all the new business that we would need, really. Right. And it almost seems like, in, in, in my experience, sometimes it's the most irrational marketing campaign ideas that you test and blow your mind. Like it's never, a, you know, an incremental, better, rational campaign, usually, um, unless it involves yeah, the rationale of just asking your buyers what's what, what's up, what are they thinking? But other than that, it's not usually the the forum, the engineering circuitry board is not. It's like that's the way to get to really dry campaigns and and I don't know people yeah, I, turned off by that. Yeah, and you know what I th I think too is if if you go down that route, um, what you run into is a lot of the same type of. Um, campaigns or language or positioning that other companies who do something along the same lines is what you're delivering, they're putting out there too. So if you follow that narrow path of logic only um, or data only, then you would, you know, invariably end up in the same place. And that doesn't uh, factor in the human side, your story, why you created what you created, which, you know, today is, is, it's not as important, but it's almost as important as the problem you're solving. People want to know the why. They want to know the people. I mean, a lot of companies, you know, we we bump into don't don't have people, 
you know, listed on the website. And that's what people care. That's, that's one of the most visited pages on a website <clears throat> is the about us and not the about us. Like here's our product. Here's another way of talking about our product, but right. the about us in who we are as, as people uh, in human beings. So um, it really is, again, the two people who we typically bump into or we hear this from are the people who don't understand marketing and the function that it does. They just see stuff show up, but they don't know how we got there. And then the, you know, the other group who thinks very almost binary, you know, you put, you put, you know, this in that out. Um, and it, it should be that simple, really. It's, it's just a logic problem and it's not. Right. Cause if it was, we'd all be doing it. Anyone could do it. Right. Anybody could successful. do it. This would be an easy job. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I can see them being, oh, we just, we just haven't deduced the correct formula yet. And yeah, so I mean, I, I, exactly. I worked with a company a while ago that had tapped out on one of its product lines. It, it literally felt that it was selling all it could into the market and by the numbers and in looking at it and, and putting in a couple of variables and a couple of wacky things, they ended up with a, a double sales Q over, you know, Q3 over Q4. Um, and they were shocked because they had run the data and the numbers and they said, we just can't sell any more of this, which is a crazy place to be. Um, but if they had just stuck to the story, that would have gone nowhere. Right. Right. The same old binary thinking. Um, I, now, now this drove you to like, just peace out and eventually found your own agency. Is that, is that the path we should all take if you encounter this? Or how, what do you recommend people? I mean, how, especially when you deal with, with clients or customers that think this, maybe you don't, uh, but like, how, how do you change their thinking here? And can you? So, yeah, I, I think what, what we can't expect right out of the gate that they are suddenly going to become uh, empaths or they're suddenly going to understand the role of psychology or behavior in the decision-making process. It's very much a, if, and I'll focus again more on the, the people who understand and view it in a certain way versus the people who just don't understand at all. That's a simple, uh, you know, generally a simple problem of education. Um, on, on the other side, on maybe the more technical side, um, we have to align ourselves with them. We have to come over to their side we have to, to speak their language, and then we have to start um, making them aware of all of these other things that are just not factoring in. Um, I, I would not say that starting your own agency is the answer to this. If, if you're wrestling with this problem, starting an agency doesn't solve it. It, it actually might make it um, something that you deal with more. Now, instead of just one boss who... <laughs> might not completely get it. Now you have 15 bosses that have very <laughs> good no, um, I say that Same conversation 15 times, right? That's a good call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the cool thing is you start developing tools. You, you start looking at ways that rather than try and convince you um, that I'm right, or you should be looking at this, start looking uh, and aligning yourself to the things that um, they are. You know, in, in, in you know, one of those stories, um, you know, I had, I had sort of beaten my head against the wall for a year or two, um, trying to convince and conjole and, 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 and really sell the idea of marketing. And what it took was um, saying, okay, what is going to get on their radar? And that is sales. 
you know, if we do something and that sounds seem, seems kind of obvious, if we just get sales, then, then we have their ear. Um, but in, you know, in some cases you just can't even get some major balls rolling, uh, because they don't believe in it. They don't understand it. They don't trust it. They just, they, they feel what they feel. Mm -hmm. So aligning with whatever it is that that person who is holding the purse strings and, you know, deciding what we can and can't do, getting alignment there, um, being able to present them with data or a view that they respect above their own. So, you know, coming in in our role, a, a lot of times as marketers, we don't necessarily get the respect. It's, it may be because of their perception of the industry or the job. It might be that they've had a couple of experiences with marketers. I mean, every industry has people in it who, um, you know, create trouble for other people in the industry. True. So, you know, there are a variety you have to kind of figure out why they have the view that they have and then find the tools that will get them uh, trusting you and getting them to know you and then getting them in, uh, in alignment. And I find that um, the voice of the customer is is huge in in many cases not every cases but when you can get the customer to speak to them and say hey you know i know you're talking about this thing over here but why we really bought the product or why we really bought from you is this thing over here that can go a long way in in opening up their thinking to uh supporting other things wow the the, the idea of finding data or view they respect above their own. Like something that you, you, you were not trying to twist their arms. You, you like go meet them where they're at and then find out the things that they respect and the numbers they trust right. and then work that. And then the one you highlight, the idea of the voice of the customer, if the customer said X and they're our favorite customer, like who, who might argue with that? Like you can't, you can't argue. Well, I don't know what they're talking about. Well, cool. I, I talked to three of them. They all said the same thing. It's, right. it's irrefutable. That's, that's exactly right. And what, you know, one way to look at that is, you know, it's not just one customer, it's a handful of customers. Uh, but, but starting with um, getting, getting whoever that person is in that role to define who they want to buy more of their, you know, if we, if we could sell, if we could sell to this, you know, we get into ABM. So the ideal yeah. customer, the ideal, uh, you know, company profile, but if we could just get more of this type of account, we would be in such great shape. I mean, how many, how many marketers have had that conversation? Who's our ideal customer? That's like 101. It's the first question you answer. And it's interesting to hear not just who the ideal customer is, but why, what makes them the ideal customer and digging into that and getting the, the, the person that you're trying to get on your side on marketing to define that and, and frame that based on customers they have today um, and make that real and put that, you know, codify that and then use that to go then to those customers and say, why did you buy it? And, and removing the company from the process too, because sometimes if you're, if that person is too close to the organization, they'll just parrot the sales talking points. They'll just tell, feed back to you the thing <laughs> that you convince right. them on. And it's not true though. Can, They're just giving you, it's like, that's the logical answer, but really we want to know the irrational reason why they bought. Right. You want to get into, you know, the whole, you know, the whole piece of what led you up to the moment where 
you discovered us, where we got in front of you with an ad or you read a blog post or you did that interactive video thing. What got you to that point? And we want to hear that language because those aren't sales talking points. Um, and they go beyond pain points. It's the context and, and all the, the band-aids that they, they tackle because they don't wake up one morning and say, oh, I have a problem. Let me go find you guys and buy. And oh, we have an ideal customer. There are a lot of things they do along the way. And when you can paint that picture for the person who's created this thing, a founder or, or you know, somebody in a C-suite and say, look, we have this amazing thing. It solves a problem. And rather than meet somebody right in the moment where they're, they have, they've woken to the fact that they're searching, if we get to them before that conversation sooner, that becomes more compelling and instantly you're in a different position um, than you were before all this happened. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess I've never really thought about how, just how powerful that is to be able to, especially when you think of a, an owner or a founder or the CEO especially when they're, they've been tied to it for many years and they kind of had those entrenched mindsets. They know a lot about their customers. They may not have asked that question to them about the why, maybe even the follow on or why that was important. They, Oh, that we met them all at the trade show, but why did they go to the trade show? Or like, wh but why did they choose you at the trade show? Um, and then like what happened here is messy, but like to be able to give them that knowledge of actually almost everyone says they really, you know, they sign up with us because, we had fun on the first phone call or the guy wears great ties, right? It was like those sort of goofy, weird things. I just, the sales guy was just so cool. I just wanted to buy from him, you know, like it's those other things yeah. really can open up doors. Yeah. I mean, nine times out of 10, it is the people thing. So yeah. Um, yeah. the, uh, you know, one of our clients is, is uh, one of the top three uh, tech companies in their space in the world. And when we went through this exercise with them, to speak directly with their, their customers to find out why they bought. Customers kept coming back and said, look, the top three, they're, they're kind of all doing the same flavor of the same type of thing. There are little details and little nuances, but honestly, for what, what we're bringing them in to do, they all can do some version of that. And the reason we bought from this company is the pre-sales process, all of the prep work, that the pre-sales team did leading up to that that final piece and signing on the line. So it's all the human side, prepping my team for the the transformation to use an overly used word. But but prepping, you know, the the team that put together the document, put together the roadmap, put together all of that before the purchase. It's a pretty it's a pretty expensive purchase. Um, so they have a team geared up for that. I mean, they're not you know selling copiers, but not that there's anything wrong with selling copiers, but they're not, um, they, they weren't focused on the human element and they weren't focused on that part of the business. I think sales learned over time what was needed to get those buyers ready. And through that, because that, from the point of starting the conversation, there's this dead zone that happens between like a lead opportunity to the sale, there's a lot of stuff that buyers, at least in, in where we play, that buyers have to do. They have to go in and they have to do internal selling. They have to make business cases. They have to ramp up teams and prep them for you know whatever this purchase is, uh, education, whatever it looks like. Um, and, and sometimes they're just left on their own. And this team uh, created a, a ton of content and assets and training and, and 
um, providing guidance and coaching on how to get set up for that. So there really is uh, sometimes, you know, again, back to the um, if I build it, they will come mentality. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I built this really amazing thing. It's so logically that it solves all of these problems. Um, a lot of times it's it's people who who kind of get in the way or activate that process. Yeah, and it'd be such a mistake to, and that people do this to, oh, it's oh, it's these features. I'm sure this new feature we added was the thing that made the difference. And it's like, no, maybe it was the fact that you held their hand through this really scary process um, pre-sales, like you described, that made them feel comfortable. And that's that was really, I mean, in doubling down on that and understanding that, that is really your edge, not that widget you you added or the the extra discount or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it, I think it's tough too. Uh, you know, again on on the marketing side, um, sales typically holds pretty tight strings on their their client relationships. So getting to a point where they're willing to give you access to that, you know, they have these these personal relationships. They don't want anyone coming in and stirring the pot and creating a problem with it where there isn't one. So often getting um, you know, them to, to open up their book and say, okay, you can talk to this person or you can talk to this person and really get into the why. Uh, they don't want to create a problem where there isn't one and they, they see um, more potential. And I think with, with good cause for opening up a can of worms where there might not other, otherwise be. So marketers have to come up with creative ways for, for ferreting out that information mm. from the customers or the buyers. And we don't we don't necessarily need to just go to our our ideal customers. We can look out at companies today and say we know they would be really great buyers, and we use that to build ABM campaigns. Um, but there there is a and you did another uh, podcast recently about uh, doing assessments. Um, I think was it Tom? Yeah, Tom. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, it really really great. And if if you guys haven't listened to that one, I think it's it's going to be a couple of weeks ago now. I don't know what your timing is, but yeah, it's number 220. You know, Tom, Tom Hessen. Yeah. Yeah. Some really good stuff there. And, um, you know, assessments play a really great role in that process. But um, he, I, I think the point he made was that marketers don't know about the prospect. They don't know about the customer. And part of that is, is figuring that out and learning that even when we can't get necessarily the support we want or getting access to the customers like sales would give us. Um, and there are different ways that as a marketer, we can get the data uh, in addition to those assessments, doing some of those quizzes, um, you know, putting out feelers or, or lures as we call them um, and get that information to then inform the type of campaigns and strategy that you, you do going forward. Right, right. Now you mentioned ABM uh, just just now and I wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about that because there's a lot of buzz around it but like getting to the real practical like do you do you do practice ABM and is it a big deal is it a small percentage of what you do and what's your take on it and then maybe we get some like best practices yeah so so there's a lot to unpack there um, I mean you want a whole love journal so I guess we can't unpack the entire journal here but uh, yeah, the uh, yeah, the so so a, a little bit of background, um, you know, I, I've been applying principles of ABM for, you know, 20 years. We didn't call it ABM. We just 
did we called it just doing what it took to get the business <laughs> the door um and, you know and now now um there is you know there's there's the label now and there's a whole you know discipline um but i think it needs to be a component to every marketing group and i feel like there, there's a stat out there that 80 something percent of marketers have abm as part of what they're doing i gotta, I gotta call yes on that stat though right i mean do you think that many i think i think 80 80 percent of marketers would like to be doing abm yeah yeah I, I, and i agree i mean i think yeah. that uh it's it's on the radar um yeah. and you'll see too with with agencies you'll see Hey, we, we're going to run a campaign and, and remarket, and we're going to call that ABM. Oh, and right. I think that not it's it's just not where what it is. Um, so I I think that we're in the kind of the maturation of the messaging of the value of ABM, but yeah. the actual nuts and bolts, you know, applied practice of it. There are plenty of companies that that are it looks really good. The promise of it sounds amazing. Well, just pick the companies that you want business to, and then target them with you know specific, really expensive advertising, and just you know focus like a laser. And there, you know, there's certainly more to it than that. We have, I mean, we're a digital agency, um, but we've found that adding upfront a physical component to the program which scares people and and you know the i the we're in we're in the time of data everything's data driven and when you send somebody something physical uh, it's really hard to track that or you know it's it's tough to prove roi and how do we plug that into all the digital um, pieces and i would i mean as again as a primarily a digital agency it's weird to be talking about physical stuff um, but we do find that things like that work. So um, having been through um, the the unofficial experience of backing into ABM campaigns out of need, not out of, hey, it's the cool thing to talk about, um, we, you know, I stumbled across uh, ITSMA, the the organization that that coined the ABM label, um, and went through their certification. Um, to to just really get you know fill in the gaps. I mean, when when you learn and you you work through something yourself, you always wonder what you don't know or what you're missing or maybe what you could be doing differently. So having gone through that certification, um, it it filled in a lot of uh, the gaps and the missing pieces for me. Um, and there there is a process. You can't do just part of it. Um, you really need to go through each of the steps. Um, and again, not just digitally speaking and running, you know, remarketing or retargeted ads yeah. to a group, but actually uh, engaging with that, uh, with that target account with intent. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I don't know that I answered your question. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I'm just even not the abmjournal.com. So it sounds like you certainly got the gaps filled in enough to even then put content out there to people where, where do you where do you think the biggest gap maybe the gaps that you remember for yourself or just the biggest gaps where people you know do you see a sort of common misconceptions around ABM and you know maybe fill in the gaps for us on here I think you know one of the gaps for me is is how do I take the idea of ABM like it, it's it's easy to understand it really is you 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 decide who your best accounts are going to be 
you create a list of who those might be, you, you create a list of who the contacts are at those accounts, contacts. Um, and, and then you, you target them and you yeah. uh, present them with content and advertising and, and you know whatever you can't you know, put together as far as that journey goes. Um, and that sounds really great, but how does that, how does that really become a, how do you decide who your ideal accounts are? And that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, how do you figure out who those are and how do you then, uh, once you have that decide, um, are we, are we going in front of them with email or are we going to, uh, get, you know, targeted display ads on a particular news site or industry channel, or how, how do we take the theory and the understanding and turn it into a practical application? And for each company in each industry, just like any marketing campaign, it's a little bit different. There is the 85 to 90% of those campaigns all kind of run uh, a similar flow. And it's that 10 to 15% that requires the, the, the vision, the creativity, the understanding of the market that we talked about earlier yeah. um, and having that and putting it into play, but also having the runway to experiment and explore with it. Again, you go back to the, I put this in and I take this out. On, yeah, I get this out on the other side. Yeah. How come anyone can't just sit down and, and do marketing? It takes um, unpacking a strategy and even a predefined campaign. There are a lot of um, tools out there that give you kind of a roadmap or they give you the customer journey and say, you know, just run this type of campaign. The work is in making that work for your business, your buyer and your, your particular brand. Got it. Yeah. Really taking it out of the theory side and making it practical. Do you have, do you have any favorite ways? Cause I, I feel like even personally, I, I've done a lot of work on the targeting. I understand it doesn't have to be perfect to start out with, but then one of the areas where I get a little mushy on is like, okay, you, you got a list. We want to go after it. Like, okay, how do we go after them? You know, is it just mm -hmm. we're we're just cold calling a select list instead of the regular list? That doesn't sound very good. Um, we're sending them all chocolates. Like, how how do you take your list? How do you go from list to like that next step? What is that next step after the list? The it is it is really understanding the buyer. It's it's similar to any other campaign in that you're really wrapping your head around. Where do they live? How do they spend their time? Yeah. Um, where do they get their information? Where can you connect with them? And then doing something different, doing something that they're not going to expect because you don't want to invest all the time and the energy in creating an ABM campaign and then feeding those assets in the same place all of the other noise is happening. You have right. to come from an angle that's unexpected. So, you know, with with one of our clients doing a campaign, we went to a big, um, I wish I could show it to you, but uh, we're, we're under an NDA, but it's a, a, it's, a, it's a tech sale, but it was a big wooden box filled with some, some very cool things and very personal things. And they had a, a really great result. I mean, it, it drove millions of dollars of opportunity for them. Um, and it was, it was very targeted. We're not talking about a thousand, per, you know, thousand company contact list it was i don't know 200 
and doing something that they're just not going to expect, but is in line with kind of their view of their, you know, work reality. Right. Um, I wish I could be more specific than that, but look, look for not the same place that everybody else is because you're, you're putting a lot of effort into being more of the mix of the noise versus, Hey, I was really surprised that, you know, I, I, or heard somebody do um, like alma mater socks. You know, I sent somebody, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, a six pack and some socks from their college and they were just, they were, it just got their attention. And that was all that they needed to break through <laughs> and start the conversation. Gotcha. Um, okay. You know, but it's, it, it's just crazy stuff. I mean, we sent out um, those little, uh, those little Funko pop dolls to some people. Yep. And they're like, this is nobody, nobody's ever, you know, sent us this. And that's what you want to get to. You want to get to a nobody's ever, and then fill in that blank. Um, but it mm. has to relate to them. It can't be crazy for crazy's sake. It has to be relevant to the conversation. So like clever, right? Cause I, I could send you root beer, but if there's no reason for root beer, it's right. It's nice. But like, but to your point, like socks of the school you went to, um, that's one you can even discover off of LinkedIn information. That's pretty smart. And I, I guess yeah. even the idea of the wooden box filled with treasures that relate to you, I, you know, I guess I just pulled up your LinkedIn. I'm like, if I was going to send you a wooden box with treasures, I don't know if I necessarily know anything about you from, I mean, how do you, I mean, I can send you college socks, but um, just suffer, would you, is it more than just LinkedIn or how do you, because I think the yeah. challenge for me is they're on your list. We got to get to really know them and their problems and who they are as a person so that we can message them. But like, we don't know anything about them other than yeah. that. So, so I'll give you an, I'll give you an, an example of something that, that worked really well. Okay. Um, we, so there are a couple of channels that, I mean, well, obviously there's a ton of social channels out there yeah. and it's, it's investigating, it's putting up some parameters. If you're, you're, uh, it's the right effort for the, the right audience. So if you have a, a list of a thousand contacts, you're not doing this type of work. But for companies that are selling, you know, it's a it's a million dollar piece of capital equipment. It's a you know, it's a ten million dollars over five year you know software license. You know, it's yeah whatever it looks like. You have you have to look at um, what is the right. A lot of these companies aren't looking to sell a thousand new seats. They need to get 27 new accounts by the end of the year. That's manageable. Their sales team can tackle that. Uh, it, it drives the right amount of revenue and you're not wasting time and resources on 973 companies yeah. that are never going to buy from you. So, so with something like this, I'm not talking about doing a thousand. I'm talking about, Hey, let's target 200. And if we convert 20 or 30, we hit our numbers and you know we have a ton of data now we've learned so much so there's a lot to be done there but when you're dealing with companies on on that level first we do it in waves so it's not a pull the trigger boom the entire campaign goes out but it's looking at their social footprint so um you know finding that person on linkedin and and often it's not a far leap to their Twitter handle if they have it, um, and yeah. looking in there, and you're and you're doing discovery. You're trying to find where they are. Um, you know, are they are they publicly available on Facebook? Typically, you can kind of 
find them there, maybe over on Instagram. You're, you're just, you're out there looking for something that really resonates with this person. And it doesn't feel like, oh, I went over to Twitter, I found them, their last tweet was this, and I'm just going to run with that. You know? Yeah, like, like you have checks really big, Mr. Peanut on yours, so I'm going to send you some snacks, I guess. Right, right. And you, and you could start a conversation that way. It might be that easy. Um, but what you want to do is you really want to wake somebody up from the, the, the typical stuff and have it not feel gimmicky, have it feel personal. We did a, a campaign where um, we dug up uh, personal, uh, personally branded hashtags through uh, people's social media channels. And then we created custom t-shirts with their own hashtag and artwork on those t-shirts and you know every time every time they said this this is absolutely amazing that you would create you know take something that typically you'd mass produce and you would do a one-off and this is so much easier to do today with technology you can you can print a one-off t-shirt in you know an hour if that yeah um but the idea that it's it's unusual it's personal it's relevant um i i think that People talk about personal a lot, but still there's the, all right, insert first name here, insert, you know, company name, and then the rest of it is all just about me. And there's too much of that. So personal really driving down into the things that are relevant. Um, and again, bringing it back to business. This is all really good on the front end uh, mm -hmm. in, in making that initial connection that, you know, initial um, piece, the, the start of the relationship, but it's getting into, okay, how do we drive that? How, we, how do we turn that into a relevant and valuable conversation that gets them into being a customer? Because if we don't right. turn those people in customers, we could have the coolest, most creative personal campaign ever. Um, and we just, we feel good, but we wasted a bunch of money right. there. Right. Interesting. Huh. I, the, the fun part is we get to be creative in this mode, right? We're getting out of the yeah. serving a thousand people when we're serving 25 or five or whatever smaller number it is. You can do more of the, I mean, you do less of the, the crazy mind numbing quant, quant stuff. And now you're getting back to the humanity of it all back to the very first point you had, which was, this is more irrational. You get to be more irrational. Hey, my new book, yes. ABM is irrational, <laughs> which doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I like it. Um, I like it. Yeah. yeah. But it's got, I mean, that's gotta be fun. There's gonna be a fun, What's that? there's gotta be a fun component. There's gotta, there's yeah. gotta be a fun, creative component to it. I mean, why else would we do this if we're not enjoying it at some level? So right. yeah. Right. Well, where, where does this progress to? What, what are you seeing coming around the bend? Are the buyers changing? Is this process changing? What's, is there another, is there a next ABM or what, what do you see down the road coming around? I think that, and something I'd I hope to see is that we narrow the focus. We, we stop casting a net out to a thousand or, <clears throat> excuse me, or 10,000 people, you know, people, and then saying, hey, we did something really targeted and that's ABM. Yeah. Uh, I really think, um, and it, it takes a lot of trust internally to invest uh, you know, a, a significant portion of your marketing budget to targeting 250 companies if we haven't proven on some level that this can really work. Mm -hmm. um, so 
so I think that what we'll see is campaign, you know, campaigns that that cast a wide net that are not strictly there. I mean, if we convert those two customers, great. New customers is always everybody's happy about that. But those campaigns are more for let's get data to inform the campaign that we use to target 200, 300 uh, ideal customers for an, for an ABM campaign. So getting, you know, stacking, we do um, micro campaigns now where it's, it's literally for each stage of the journey. This is just a small campaign and the purpose is to whatever the stage is, accomplish that and then hopefully move them into the next stage. So in this case, putting a broader campaign out there so that you can, rather than have that big funnel that just comes all the way down, you kind of have this like really short funnel. And the purpose there is to get information and data and yeah. work to just get right into a really, really targeted campaign. So, you know, three months of setup and running that feeler campaign to lead into, because a lot of companies, they don't have good data to start these campaigns. They don't know. The question is, you know, it comes to, you know, I, I just don't know. It goes back yeah. to that, uh, the, the conversation before in that I, I don't, I don't know enough about my customer to make good, good decisions and make recommendations that people will believe they want to see the data. What data do I get? Uh, and how do I get that? And I think those, those initial feeler campaigns stacked on top of an ABM campaign campaign can really help with that. Yeah, more of a combined effort, not just out there by itself. I, I could see the whiplash of thinking you're doing ABM, it doesn't work, or it takes longer than you think, and mm -hmm. then not doing it, you know, sort of going back in the other direction, going back to the mass marketing approach. Um, so I, I imagine, you think some of that will be, I mean, I guess everyone will try new things and some will fail and some will succeed and the ones listening to this yeah, podcast so will do well. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think there's absolutely some experimentation there on the other side. So that's on the front end yeah. in the actual ABM campaign. Um, a lot of what's happening right now is retooling of other assets. It's a let yeah. me run this campaign and highly target 10,000 users and then put, uh, you know, a, a, another white paper in front of them. Yeah. And we, we've said this a million times. We're white papered out. Um, you know, we we were white papered out four or five years ago. And now we're really, we're really at that limit, but we're putting something else on the front end of that and hoping that that plays out. And just like with the, the assessment that was covered in the last podcast, um, there are tools that it's not that content doesn't work in this context. It's that, uh, you know, the, there, there's burnout on the customer side and we need to get them engaged. We need to get them interacting uh, we need to get them, um, you know, experiences that uh, teach them. And so uh, putting together things like uh, a quiz or an assessment or um, like Netflix did this choose your own video, I, uh, choose your own adventure video. I forget the name of it. I don't know if you watched it the um, a couple of years one? ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so that I think is, is really inspirational because now you're bringing in a relatively passive audience who is there for entertainment and you're getting them to experience it. 
and looking at something like that. And we've created a couple of these interactive videos. So instead of driving um, a, a prospect, even ABM, into a funnel where you have a 45-minute you know, webinar video pre-recorded, it's ungated, uh, what you do is you slice that up and you work into that, um, like in, for some of our clients, like a patient story or a customer story or other video assets of value. And then you start getting some of the data. You get, you get them self-selecting by making choices and choosing which path in the video they want to take. So, um, you know, in, in the case of one of our, our clients, there is an industry kind of struggle right now. Do we, they, they deal in, in cardiovascular products. And in some cases when there's, you know, open heart surgery, um, do they close back up the natural material around the heart or do they kind of just leave it alone? And some doctors think you should and some doctors think you shouldn't. Depending on a doctor's perspective on how they treat that surgery, it, it actually changes the sales conversation with the rep with that doctor when they go in. So rather than wait until you're in the room and you're spending time, okay, now, now I realize I'm talking to somebody who doesn't close that up. I have to have this conversation. Putting that kind of choice in the front end of a video, so you only show them information based on their personal context. One, you're giving them a more personal experience without putting their name in a, in a variable. But two, that click and that information can be put into a sales force. It can yeah. be put into the record so that the salesperson can say, okay, they're, they're a closer or they leave it open. And now I can start the conversation there. And you can do that with any variety uh, of variables along the sales process. And you can really start the conversation way ahead of where you would do that without. It sounds fun. It sounds like I can't wait to have more and more of this. You know, I'd love to have choose your own adventure content. And, you know, like, again, getting back to the fun, fun of it, we don't want to see your 30 page white paper. Even the term white paper just sounds right. so scary and terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and even, even with that, I mean, who, who, I mean, we all have that graveyard on our desktop, right? It's that folder of stuff we download and we're going to read it and we never do. Okay. Um, and, we, you know, it's it, it's unfortunate. We really want people to to consume that and be educated and learn things and have this epiphany that they should buy from us. But that's just not the that's not the the normal behavior. That's a that's a logical. If I put this in, I will get this out. But it doesn't yeah. account for the human side of that. So you have to do things. The information's still good. The content's still good. The idea and the thinking around it is still good. It's the the operational, it's the, the human side, the interactive side of something like that. It's just so static and it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Static is lame. Lame. Maybe in the future, everything's not static. And then people will be like, man, bring me back to the days of static content, all this interaction. Oh my goodness. But I don't know. Sign me up, man. This sounds, sounds good. Sounds exciting. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, my question to you now is like, who are you? Like, how do you know all these things? How have you experienced all this? Can you take me back in time? Like back in the day, little Bill growing up, like where, where did you grow up? Were you, were you local New Hampshire or where did you get your start? Uh, no, no. I, uh, good question. Thanks for that. The, um, I grew up in Vermont. I was born 
um, in southern Vermont, and then we moved up to central Vermont. Well, that explains and, a lot. Uh, a lot about what I know about I, you now. Vermont. Got it. Yeah. Ben and you know, Jerry. And I, I really came from, from... Oh, sorry. You go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm just... I'm making fun of you in Vermont. I'm New Hampshire. And the, uh, New Hampshire makes fun of Vermont. Yeah. It just it happens. There were plenty to make fun of. The um, You know, <laughs> and for me, it was an interesting... It was interesting because I, I really grew up with uh, two, two really different families. One was very, you know, salt of the earth, uh, you know, a military Marine family, um, you know, growing up. And then the other side came from, you know, my grandparents, uh, came from Europe, um, escaping, you know, world war two and, and living in Manhattan. So having those really two different, uh, cultures, even within the family really created, uh, you know, an interesting environment. Um, and you know, it was a lot of music, a lot of art, a lot of writing, um, a lot of creating. Uh, I think I started playing guitar when I was four um, and wrote a first very small computer program when I was eight um, mm -hmm. and constantly writing and drawing and, and creating all these things. And even in choosing uh, a path in college, and I don't, I don't know how many people really know going into college what they want to do, but right. it's like, do I do art or music or do I get into computers? And I, you know, I, I pursued design um, because I could see a lot of um, all of those things in design. It wasn't just ink on paper. There was, there, there was a writing component. There was a, this cool technology coming out called the internet and I'm old, um, but it was, there was a lot going on. And so there was a, you know, there was a promise there. Um, and for me, you know, I've, I've working with other, you know, agency partners, typically an agency founder comes from a discipline. They're, they're really being into technology or they're a copywriter or they're a creative ideas person. And yeah. for me, it, it hasn't ever been, uh, you know, about one thing it's, it's, you know, I'm distractible, but, uh, you know, always looking at the creative side, always looking at the communication, the language side of it and the technology, how can we bring all that together um, and, and make something that would be better than if you didn't. And that's, that's actually how we came up with the name mesh, which is, which is bringing those three things together um, in a way that hopefully is more effective and, and engaging and fun than if you didn't, if you focus just on the design or you just wrote really good copy um, or it was just the data, it was just the technology. Um, when you bring those three things together, it's just, just really crazy magical things happen. It sounds like you've been doing that your entire life, just creating whether it's the technical yeah. side or the physical yeah yeah it's been it's been uh it's been really really fun it's it's challenging at times um because you it's not sometimes it's not very tangible it's not a hey i made a thing you know i made a widget you know i solved a problem sometimes it's just it's just about creating um yeah. but i you know in a perfect world it's always it's always there's always something new at the end of it yeah. Yeah. And then that variety and the create, create the creation creates that variety. And, um, I, I didn't know you, so you had these different influences when you're, when you're young, I didn't know you had, there's a Marine nearby that was. So did you yeah, my, my grandfather. Yeah. My, my grandfather, he was, a he was a Mason. And I remember driving around through New Hampshire and Vermont and my mom would just kind of, you know, roll down the window of our green wood panel station wagon and sure. be like, look, you know, your, your, your grandfather helped build that building over there or help build, you know, that, that sort of thing. 
And, um, you know, that coupled with sort of that pragmatic, you know, New Englander um, coupled with sort of the world view of art and music. I mean, uh, my other grandfather was a conductor for the Metropolitan Opera. Um, And just having those two worlds uh, collide um, really created some just um, just I was really lucky. Uh, I didn't feel like it at the time, but as as a kid, I was really lucky to have all of that um, available to me. Yeah, the contrast too between and when you said Mason, I didn't really you meant like Mason Mason, like actually building those things. So to ha- yeah. ha- now both are creating just in different ways. It's really interesting. Um, one is that tangible building you can point at. The other one is the most amazing concert people have ever heard two weekends ago. You, you know that it's not yes. physical. Maybe you have a program from it, but you don't. It just it was a moment. It was an experience. So the experience, an experience versus and a memory. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. The memory. Yeah. So, so those two things, one, you know, practical hands-on making something that that's a value. And on the other hand, um, joy and entertainment and a memory and an experience that, yeah. that really sticks, uh, really sticks with you. Man. Well, I have, a, I have a hypothetical for you. I may or may not have a time machine down here in Nashua, which is only a few minutes away here. So, uh, COVID's all done. You come use the time machine. It's in the backyard, and you get to go back in time, and see yourself right after right after school and um, mm-hmm. graduate. You're off to the world, starting your career. If you could go back and talk to Bill, then what what kind of advice would you give yourself? I think that I think that Bill then um, was was worried about. Um, all of the bad things that could happen, you know, making I, there was a part of me that always just wanted to have my own business, whether it was, you know, design or being an illustrator. At one point, I wanted to draw comic books, Um, you know, whatever it ended up being, there was there was always a really kind of deep seated uh, fear of taking that risk. And, you know, you, you there won't be money, or there won't be there all the things that won't be. And um, I pursued some more safe, um, not exactly traditional, but more safe avenues. And I would go back and say, uh, you know, it works out and, you know, take the risk as opposed to don't, Um, you know, make the jump and, you know, you will find a way it will work out. And um, that's what I would say today. Yeah, that's cool. Just give yourself a little reassurance that it's going to be good. You're going to be fine. Yeah, I, I yeah. hear you. I mean, think about the things we think, think about the things we worry about. The irrational, yeah. like it feels rational right now, and right now is crazy time. But now might not be the best time to 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 think about it. But think about all of the the things we feel are so big and so looming, and so you know the most important. You know, they seem like the most monumental issues, and then we look back, you know, six months or a year, and we're yeah. like, ah, you know, it it works out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I think that the younger younger I am, I remember just being like growing up, just being anxious about a lot of things, just like, oh my gosh, like the homework, did I have the test? Like, in, and when we look back now, it's kind of a good example of like, now I, I, like kids should not ask me about school because I'm like, nah, you know, nah, I don't know what to tell you. College, go to college, maybe, right. I don't know. But like, now I think back, like, oh man, all the, the worried nights I had pulling off late projects and stuff in school when it's like, well, you know, 
there's another thing that was happening behind the scenes, which eventually would be make, make it successful. And it, you know, it's like, I don't know. What, what is that? We just, we just, we can see a couple feet in front of us, I guess. And we don't have the context of knowing that it's going to be good. We don't know. We just don't know. And, and what it is, is really, um, I think it's a little bit maturity, you know, experience. It's, it's surviving that thing that I was so afraid of, uh, you survive it and it's not gonna there was i forget who it is but there was a he's an army guy or a seal guy and he's he he does uh, a lot of talks i think he wrote a book um and david goggins he maybe but his thing is people ask him like how come you're not afraid of this thing happening in business and he's like well i went over there and uh people were trying to kill me and (laughs) that's not going to happen here so i'm not afraid you know, right. and I probably stumbled across that five years ago. And since then, it's that I mean, that was that seems kind of weird, but that was really um, eye opening for me. Like that thing I'm really afraid of is like if I say the wrong thing in the meeting or if I do that, they're literally not going to kill you. So, you know, you can kind of put the, um, you know, the fear off to the side is a job on the line or these numbers. You know, there are things to have varying degrees of concern about, but um you know, not fear. Yeah. I just feel like think good creativity comes from that necessarily as it, as it does from, I don't know, restriction. You you can like restrict yourself and then get some creativity out of that. But fear tends to, it's like, you know, it's cold out. All your body parts start shutting down. It's not like a lock up. Yeah. Yeah. Survival mode is not your most creative time. I mean, it's the warm shower. I don't think, I think, I don't think the best creativity ideas come from the cold shower, right? Cold shower. You're like, I, I heard this on the internet and this is supposed to help me, help me out. This really sucks. Like, when can I get out? But then the hot shower, you're like, Oh, maybe I should open a company that does X, Y, and Z. <laughs> right. There was, there was somebody, somebody who, uh, who had a post about starting the day off with a cold shower because that's the worst thing that's going to happen to them. And if I can take a cold shower, I can survive anything. And I'm like, are you insane? That yeah. is, that is exactly not how I would ever want. I tried, I think it was like five seconds. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing this. There's, there's yeah. a, you know, I have other things that I can put in the way of my day and say, if I overcome this, I'm, I'm going to be all right, but not, not a cold shower. That is, you know, unless it's a really hot day and then it's like a minute, but no, that's right. And we're in new England. So just getting out of bed is usually cold anyway. So there, there right. it is. <laughs> right. And we're getting into that. Uh, looking out the window. We're getting into that weather. Today's nice, but yeah. we are getting into that chilly time. It's getting there. They call it like false fall. Like, Oh, it's fall. No, it's summer. Oh, now it's like getting into false winter where you're like, Oh, it's cold. Then it'll be warm out again. And it'll be mm-hmm. cold. It's a mind Turn game. Turn on the heat. One day is cold, and then I come in and it's sweltering because it's on <laughs> We're in the park to exactly. the office. Do you still find time to mm-hmm. play guitar a lot? Uh, not this week, um, but yeah, I. Uh, in fact, I just actually bought another new guitar, and uh, I'm going to be making time for it. But yeah, I'm uh, the the nice the one of the tiny silver linings about this period is it's given me. Uh, more time with the kids and more time to do some uh, music stuff. And that's been really nice. Yeah. I found the same thing too. I'm supposed to be this hiking mountaineer guy and I hadn't done much prior to COVID lately because I'd been busy and this Mm -hmm. has given me a chance to say, well, I can't really socialize the way I'd want to right now, but I can go to the mountains and it's yeah. To your point, it really has given me a chance to 
get back out and do those things. I don't think I will lose those after, after COVID too. You know, I think I'll try to maintain that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice to get out and uh, getting out with the kids now too. I mean, but you know, if we weren't in this, the kids would be in class all day and we'd be, you know, working our butts off and, now it's a, all right, let's, you know, get your work done. I'll get my work done and let's go, you know, let's go hike a trail or something. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it, it is, I think there's a lot of focus on, uh, and understandably on the things that we're dealing with right now. Sure. Um, but we have to remember to take it, you know, it's presenting us with opportunities as well. Um, and we should take advantage of those because we're, we're not going to be able to, again, well, probably not going to be able to again. Yeah. It's like a hard reset on the Nintendo system. You know, it gives us, there's something, there is a silver lining to it for sure. Good stuff, man. Hey, where can people connect with you? Connect with you, the ABM journal, all these things, mesh. Yeah. So, you know, I'm over on LinkedIn. Um, the, I don't even remember what my LinkedIn profile is. It was, uh, I don't know. So over on LinkedIn, uh, <laughs> Twitter, Bill Schick, um, those are, those are probably the two best places that check us out on, uh, meshagency.com. And, uh, you mentioned the abmjournal.com as well. That's a, that's a great spot for news on what's going on in ABM. And we're actually expanding that to some really unique, uh, data and information on where ABM is going and, and what's really working and, and maybe not so. Excellent. Excellent. Good stuff, man. Thanks for coming on right, here. This thanks, has been man. fun. what did you think? I thought it was great. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's not necessarily as good as meeting up with the common man and getting some beer and some, some appetizers, but next best thing, whiskey. The COVID time, you know, whiskey, whiskey, whiskey. whiskey. definitely whiskey for me. Oh, yep. just whiskey. For um, you? I, I, I'm definitely more of a, a whiskey drinker. I I'll have the occasional beer. Yeah. But definitely uh, old fashioned over here. Old fashioned. So, um, we go. Yeah. Well, then we so. dressed for the part. Absolutely. I guess I am dressed for the beer right now, so it's all good. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool, good man. stuff, man. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, and you know, for the people listening, if you learned something, then share this episode with someone else. And I know you did because I literally have two pages of notes front and back from what I've been learning here. So share this with someone else. LinkedIn's a great place for it. You put your takeaways at the top. You link to it in the comments tag myself tag bill we'll start a conversation we'll get some things going and that's that's how you do thought leadership and again bill awesome see you again man let's hang out thanks thank you talk soon all right you bet you bet those listening it's been the hardcore marketing show this has been a fun time we'll catch you all next time